Love and God, we thank you for bringing Tim and Helen to us this morning. We ask for your anointing on him as he brings your word. We thank you for the time he has spent in preparation. We thank you for the service that he and Helen give teaching at Moorlands. We thank you for them preparing men and women of God to be prepared to go out in the world in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of places, that they may serve you and bring many to hear your gospel. Amen. So we ask your blessing on them, on their marriage, on their home and their work. Mm. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks so much, Rachel. And thanks so much for um, having us both here this morning. Um, we came last time, I think, was it May, June time, somewhere around that? It was a really hot day. We were just reflecting, we remember that. And um, received such a warm welcome from you and have again today. So we're so grateful for that. And um, really good to be with you again this morning. Um, now, my understanding is that this is uh, the first of a new series that uh, you're going to be going through over the next few weeks, looking at different characters in the Bible and how they demonstrate something of the character of God or through their lives and stories and interaction with God, how we can see something of who God is and what God is doing in the world, which is a wonderful series to be going through, I think. And then today, the task falls to me to start right at the very beginning in Genesis uh, 1 to 3, looking at Adam and Eve, which is uh, no small feat, I think. And as I've been uh, reading these passages over the last um, two or three weeks or so, uh, it strikes me just how much there is in there that we could and, and could, that we could look at. And, and one of the challenges has been how do we kind of narrow that down uh, for this morning. And so I want to think through a little bit with you uh, in a few minutes about the temptation that has faced Adam and Eve and what we can learn from that in our own walk with God and how God responds to that. I think it was um, Oscar Wilde, perhaps, who said, I can resist anything apart from temptation. Uh, and of course, this is a common human experience for us, the, the tempting to do things that we know are not right. And so I'm hoping that we can uh, learn something together from the way uh, Adam and Eve faced temptation and God's response and God's reaction to that in just a minute. But before we get to that, I think it's worth looking in the first uh, chapters one and two about God's original design for humanity. Now, these are passages I'm sure that you uh, know very well if you've been in church for um, uh, you know, more than a little while, then um, in the beginning is a well-worn path. It's um, a part of scripture that many people will know really, really well. But I think it's worth just reflecting briefly on God's original design and plan for humanity. Because we see right in the very beginning, in the first couple of chapters in Genesis, we see things like God breathed into Adam. He breathed his life into Adam. God was creating humanity for a unique relationship with God, distinct from the other animals and distinct from the rest of creation. Humanity alone was created for a relationship with God. There's a sense in which the garden is the uh, human kind of, the, the earthly dwelling place of God with people. God created human beings. He created us for relationship with him. We read in Genesis chapter 3 of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This shows us something of God's original plan to have a relationship with us. God does not need us. 
but he wants to have a relationship with us. We see God's, part of God's original design for humanity was that we are designed for a community. God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. We're designed to be in community. We're designed to work. God set Adam to work in the garden, to cultivate it. Work is not just a product of sinfulness entering into the world. We're designed for work, but we're also designed for rest. Creation and the story of creation doesn't end with the, um, the, the creation of mankind. It doesn't create with the, end with the creation of humanity. It ends with God resting. There's a rhythm of um, work and rest. I love the way that the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes about the Sabbath, writes about this rest. He talks about, he's, he's written a book on, it's called something like the Sabbath as resistance, right? That the, the Sabbath is subversive, particularly in our culture today, in this kind of modern culture that we live in, where there's such an emphasis on productivity and efficiency and everything we do has to be moving forward and getting somewhere and doing all of this. The act of stopping to rest and to worship is an act of, of resistance against that kind of cultural more, 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 bigger, 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 better, 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 where we remind ourselves that our work is not just dependent upon us, that we are created beings dependent upon a creator. So we're, we're designed for work and for rest. We're designed to have authority. Part of God's initial design for humanity was to have authority, a delegated authority for sure. But God gave Adam the task of, of cultivating the garden, of naming the animals. And of course, in this kind of ancient culture, naming bestows, you know, it, it's not just, well, what's this? It's not, it's not a kind of bureaucratic exercise, giraffe, check, zebra, check. You know, naming the animals is, is an act of authority over creation. And I think perhaps most importantly, in these early chapters of Genesis, we see something of the uniqueness of humanity. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says these famous words. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, this kind of idea that humanity is exceptional among creation has been challenged by some of the ideas of Darwin and others which says that really there's nothing that distinct between humanity and the rest of the creative order which is kind of the latest progression in the line of evolution and of course that's deeply problematic I think in our world today in which we're trying to create human rights and guard the sanctity of life outside of this kind of unique understanding of humanity. And so we end up with all kinds of problems where we say, well, you know, if we're essentially just the same as our pets that we love, you know, when our pets get old and, you know, it becomes um, uneconomical to keep them, we take them to the vet and we put them down, you know. And, and so this kind of idea of the sanctity of life divorced from, made uniquely in the image of God, has some serious problems. And if we are unique, if we are unique among creation, people, again, outside of, a, outside of this um, divinely ordered universe, how do we say that humanity is distinct? How do we say that humanity is unique? People might say, well, 
human beings have an intellect or we have language or whatever it might be. But what does that say to people who have mental disabilities or struggle with language or whatever it might be? See, the Bible uniquely defines the sanctity of life because humankind is alone created in the image of God. But this also gives us a unique humility, which again goes, I think, against some of the modern conceptions of humanity. In the kind of 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, when human beings were exploring the universe and uh, making scientific and technological breakthroughs, we started to believe that as a human race we could do whatever we wanted to, right? That we could be like gods, in effect. And in this one verse, Genesis 1 ver uh, verse 27, we see the emphasis on God created. Three times that word created appears. Demonstrates that we are not like God. We are not God. We are not the creator. And so this gives us, I think, a unique humility. That though we are unique and special among creation, we also need to remember our place as the created beings. So with that in mind, it's a very broad brushstroke of some of the kind of uh, features of God's design for humanity. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. And first of all, I'm just going to read verses 1 to 7. And then a little bit later, I'll read the rest of the chapter. It says this. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is, not, that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly, you, sorry, you will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, just a few things I want to see here. I want you to see about the nature of temptation and some of the things that the serpent that I think still represents the ways that we get tempted and we feel tempted today. Did you notice that the serpent twists God's word? Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, that's not what God had said, right? But the, the serpent here is twisting God's word. And in twisting God's words, he's encouraging Eve here to focus on the prohibition, right? They've been given so much to enjoy. So, such a beautiful garden, such wide parameters that they can do to enjoy together. But here the serpent is focusing on the one thing they were told not to do, twisting it, getting them to focus on it. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like that in temptation? Because that's often how it works. There's so much good things that we can do, but the enemy just whispers this little voice in here, but you're not supposed to do that. And then that becomes, oh, yeah, but that's what I really want, that one thing that I'm not supposed to be doing. That's, you know, that one extra thing over there, whatever it might be. Focuses 
on the prohibition. And then we've got the outright lie, haven't we? You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will not surely die, is of course a lie there. And of course, part of temptation today is the strategies of the evil one to lie to us. Tell us, no, there's, there's no real consequences for sin. There's no real consequences if you follow that temptation. At the root, I think, of the temptation here in Genesis 3 is the temptation to be autonomous. The temptation to move away from being the creator, to move away from this unique relationship that uh, we were supposed to have with God. To move away from this relationship of dependent upon our, a dependency upon our creator and to be autonomous, to be independent. You know, the word autonomous literally means self-rule, self-law, right? You see, Eve should have said, we're already like God. We're made in his image. But the subtext here is you don't even have to be dependent upon God. You can, you can organize good and evil for yourself. You can define life in your own terms. You don't have to be dependent on God anymore. You can have it your way. And actually, I think this is so often the lie that exists behind many of the temptations that we, def- that we face that we start to believe the lie that being dependent upon God, living in relationship with him, is oppressive, it's restrictive. We sort of start to get this idea, oh, nobody tells me what to do. I I don't want to be dependent upon somebody else. I don't want to live by someone else's standards. I don't know if any of you have seen the uh, movie Invictus. Anybody seen that movie? It's um, about the... 1995 Rugby World Cup in South Africa, when uh, an older Nelson Mandela calls in the South African rugby captain and basically says, I want you to win this Rugby World Cup because it would be so inspiring for the nation. And the movie goes on to show um, how they do go on to win the Rugby World Cup. But one of the things that Nelson Mandela, the president of South Africa, gives to the captain of the South African Rugby World Cup is a poem that uh, the movie is named after, this poem Invictus, who I've forgotten who is by, by is it Hadley? I can't remember, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, this, this poem that um, fueled Nelson Mandela through some of his roughest nights when he was imprisoned on Robin Island. And the poem ends with this final stanza, this final verse, which says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that becomes really inspiring. That's the poem Invictus from which the movie is named. And that becomes really inspiring to this guy. He says, it doesn't matter the opposition we face. It doesn't matter the trials that come against us. I'm in charge of what I do. No one tells me what to do. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm I'm not swayed around by these oppressive expectations that others put on me. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my own soul. And actually, that is very often the kind of cultural narrative that we pick up, doesn't it? It's so, so many different areas. You know, from Freddie Mercury, I want to break free, to um, what was that song in The Greatest Showman? This is me. You know, no one tells me what to do. I'm free. 
This idea, I think, that we can so easily get that if we live in dependence of, if we live in dependent relationship with God, it will be restrictive, it will be oppressive, and actually we've got to come out from that. We've got to break free. We become the hero as we kind of take off and unshackle ourselves from this oppressive fundamental past. But the truth, of course, as it unravels here in Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve very quickly realize is that, as Paul says in Romans 6, they might have broken free from their relationship with God, but they've realized that they're slaves to sin. That actually, although they have have broken off from this dependent relationship with God, what happens? They become slaves to sin. That actually this freedom is not all it's cracked up to be. So let's read on together. If you've got your Bibles from Genesis chapter 3 on uh, from verse 8. Then the man and his wife, this is the kind of ongoing consequences and implications then of their sin. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said, to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is so interesting for us, I think, and so instructive as to some of the consequences of this first sin in the garden. What's the first thing that Adam and Eve do in response to their sin. Their eyes are open. There's awareness of sin. And when they start to see, they hide. Isn't that so very often our reaction when we sin? We hide from other people. We hide from God. 
And of course, that's so uh, destructive, I think, for us. Because when we isolate ourselves like that, we remove ourselves from the very place where we can find healing, forgiveness, and wholeness again from our relationship with God. But we cut ourselves off, not only from God, but from other people when we sin. Shame isolates us from the healing and restoration that we find both in God and in community. But also there's a sense of brokenness here, isn't there? As Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they're expelled from the presence of God, the relationship that they were supposed to have as part of God's original design for humanity has been broken. The relationship, they're cast out from the presence of God, cast out from the garden. Their relationship between each other is broken. Their relationship with work and the authority they're supposed to have over ground and over the created order is broken. Work is hard. The reason, by the way, that work is hard for us now is because of the curse on the ground. That's part, that's part of the implications of the fall. It's not just our relationship with God, but it's our relationship with one another. This is why we argue with one another. This is why work can often be hard. But in the midst of that, there are also glimpses, I think, of grace. In verse 21, we read that God clothed them. He provided clothing for them. And very often in the Old Testament, clothing is uh, an act of bestowing significance and honour on that person. Now, that may be a little bit of a stretch to read that into these verses, but certainly God is providing for them despite their sin, despite their rebellion against him. He's clothing them. He wants them to have dignity still. And significantly, we read in chapter 3, verse 15 there, I read them out there, what is often described as the first gospel or the first glimpses of the gospel in the second half of verse 15, the offspring, uh, God says, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. We see, don't we, throughout scripture, the offspring of the serpent offering, often clashing with the offspring of Adam and Eve. We see this, for example, in 1 Samuel 17, in the battle between David and Goliath. And the Hebrew actually, when it describes Goliath, actually describes him as wearing armor like snakeskin. You know, that's what it's described as. We see this kind of battle going on, which ultimately, of course, points to Jesus, the crushed serpent when Jesus died, but coming at great cost to Jesus. Now, to start to bring this down to land, I just want to think about some of the implications and applications for us as we inevitably face temptations on a daily basis. Because I think the reality is, is that if we don't understand the grace of God, if we don't understand the love and the character of God, then his rule and reign and being dependent upon, upon him is indeed an, an oppressive and restrictive thing. If we don't understand the character of God, his standards are high. And so therefore, religion, I think, can be very oppressive. Following God can be oppressive. We all face temptation, but the answer to temptation is not, let me try harder. The answer when we are tempted to, I don't know, cheat in our workplace or when we're faced with sexual temptation or pornography or whatever it might be, the answer is not just, I must try really hard to avoid these things. 
The answer is to revel in the grace of God and come back to a loving, dependent relationship with him. You see, the person who does things right in their own strength, the legalist, the one who follows all the rules, can be equally devoid of relationship dependency with God. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 makes this so clear to us, how both sons have walked away from God and been dependent, uh, have walked away from a dependent, loving relationship with the father. One through, you know, outrageous, immoral living and, you know, breaking away from the security and the protection of the father. The other one by trying to earn their way into the father's good books. And both are equally independent and is not God's plan for us. A number of years ago, I moved to Zambia. And I thought that God was calling me to go and spend the rest of my life serving there. And so I sold everything that I'd got and uh, moved to go and work in a Bible college in Zambia. And I'd been there for a few weeks. And I was literally in pieces. I'd gone there with full of optimism and enthusiasm. And after I'd been there for a few weeks, I quickly realized that it wasn't going to be anywhere near as easy as I thought it was. And uh, so I was, um, you know, a little bit thinking, what on earth have I done with my life here? What, you know, what is going on? And I remember one day feeling particularly discouraged, particularly down. And I was praying and I was reading Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I was reading those verses and I was like, just praying and tears streaming down my face. I was like, God, I'm delighting myself in you. God, can't you see all these things that I'm trying to do for you? Look at what I'm doing, Lord. Why aren't you giving me the desires of my heart? It's not like the desires of my heart were really selfish things. It's not like I was saying, God, why haven't you given me a nice car and why haven't you given me a nice house and all these kind of things. I was like, God, why is this ministry so hard? Why aren't we seeing greater fruit through this kind of work here? And just very gently, I think, as I was praying, God started to expose the legalism that was in my heart as if he owed me anything because of this teeny tiny thing that I'd done for him. And what I'd realized is that I'd started to become independent from God a little bit. And I started to try and say, God, look at what I'm doing for you. Therefore, you must owe me something. And what I started to realize is that if I truly delight myself in the Lord, then the desire of my heart is to delight in the Lord. It is to delight in the Lord. And I think part of what these verses teach us is that dependence upon God and living in complete submission to him, will become restrictive and and oppressive if we don't see the grace of God, if we don't see his love, if we don't see who he is, if we don't see his character. And here's where I think it's all pointing to, and here's where I'm going to come down to land. I love Derek Kidner is an Old Testament scholar, and I love the way that he talks about uh, Genesis 3 here. This idea of um, uh, the serpent, it says in Genesis 3, uh, verse 13. uh, Then the Lord God said, uh, sorry, um, I've lost my place a little bit here. 
Um, verse 12, the man said, the woman you put me, uh, put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. I love the words that Derek Kidner says about this. He focuses on these words, take and eat. And he says, such a simple act, so hard it's undoing, that God would taste poverty and death before these words, take and eat, become words of salvation. When Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, we read in Matthew 26, that Jesus took and ate. This is my body given for you. And the, the grace of God shows us that when Jesus died, he is, he is undoing the effects of the curse that took place here. Take and eat. So simple the act, so hard it's undoing, says Derek Kidner. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. We all face temptations in our life, don't we? We're tempted every day. And we're tempted not just in the big things to, I don't know, you, we're probably not tempted very often to commit murder, maybe so often if you've got a particularly cantankerous co-worker. Um, or we're not very often perhaps even tempted to commit adultery or, you know, these big things. But on a daily basis, I think we are tempted to do things our own way, independent of our creator God. And if we don't understand the grace of God that was shown to us so beautifully through the cross, when Jesus says, here is my body, take and eat, then our relationship and our dependence of God will feel oppressive and it will feel restrictive. And so the answer to the temptations that we face in our life is not, right, we've just got to knuckle down and try harder. It's see again the grace of God See again, preach to yourself the gospel day by day, that we might see that the reign and rule of God over our lives, that his creator position and our dependence upon him is not something restrictive and oppressive. But it's something beautiful and life-giving if we see it in those ways. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord, we praise you for the beauty of the gospel that Jesus said of his own body, take and eat. And in doing so, undid all of the effects of the curse. That what, though we were cast out of the garden, cast out of your presence through Christ, the curtain has been torn and we've been welcomed back in with open arms, not because of anything that we have done, but because we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Oh, what a saviour. Oh, what glorious truth. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us. Lord, tomorrow and the next day, Lord, we're going to face temptations in our workplace, in our home life. Not just big things, but in the daily decisions where we face the temptations to do things in our own strength, in our own energy, where we just think, yeah, I'll, I'll do it my way. I, won't, I don't need to pay attention to you right now in this moment. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would reveal again the truth of the gospel 
the truth of your grace, that we would see dependence upon you, not as restrictive and oppressive. Oh, God's just trying to spoil all my fun again. But we would see a loving Heavenly Father, that we would see the grace of Jesus that tasted death, that we might have glorious life with you forevermore. So Lord, I pray that this would transform our understanding, that this would transform our lives as we live in its truth this week. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Rachel.